say is in a crucial stage. It's not because of foreign wars we wage. It's more to do with the colors blue and red. Too many laws and too much government. Can you tell me where the Constitution went? Bill of Rights is just hanging by a thread. So many people try to cross the border. And politicians build a new world order. Too many minds are convinced they should be led. I've gotta be free the way God made men. And I won't be ruled. Alright, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to today's broadcast of Tap into the Truth. Hope you're having a fantastic day wherever you are and whatever you may be doing, with all the usual caveats, of course. Uh, with you as always, I am your ever so humble and mostly peaceful host, Tim Tap, coming to you live from historic Roan County, Tennessee. And we've got a lot to talk about, so I'm kind of talking over Matt for the usual roll in. I'm going to keep playing it in the background, I'm going to let it end on its own, but today was the day. Time of the live broadcast happens to be April 4th, 2023, and history was made as an indictment against a former president was released. It was unsealed. The truth was relegated. Uh, it was the expected clown show. Uh, there was no frog hop into the courtroom, though. No handcuffing. No perp walk. Uh, a lot of pleasantries given the nature of what happened but at the end of the day we are talking about the grand jury indictment against the former president of the united states one donald john trump aka the orange man who's bad the kicker of puppies the eater of babies the climate arsonist the grand jury indictment was unsealed in a manhattan courtroom Occurred just a smidge after 2 p.m. Eastern Time and afternoon as the former president sat in the room while under arrest. The former president of the United States was, in fact, charged with 34, count them, 3, 4, 34 felonies of falsifying business records stemming from alleged hush money payments to porn actress Stormy Daniels and Playboy model Karen McDougal. Now, we all know Stormy was just angling for an appearance on The Apprentice. Trump entered a plea of not guilty. He entered it himself. He did not do the usual let my attorney do it for me routine. He stood up. Manly man, the Donald. He said, not guilty. The, George, the, George, the judge reportedly warned Trump against making inflammatory statements that could incite violence against officials. Well, I'm recording a little later than usual because I listened to Donald Trump's remarks once he returned to Mar-a-Lago this evening. I actually was late to tuning in, so I missed the first part, but I will critique that here in just a bit. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that warning and the fact that Trump wasted no time whatsoever 
to posting what I'm sure the judge and the Manhattan DA's office are going to consider to be very inflammatory statements. Although they really weren't. They're just calling out the high level of grade A bovine excrement that happens to be this charge and uh, the people behind these charges. Yes, yes, indeed. Trump's 11-vehicle motorcade arrived at the Manhattan Criminal Courts building about 1.30 p.m. Eastern. So he was there in plenty of time. Wasn't going to be late. No drama. Although you would have thought this would be the equivalent of the O.J. Simpson uh, slow-speed white Bronco chase the way CNN was reporting it. Here we are outside of the Mar-a-Lago facility. It's starting last night, the night before the events. We're expecting Donald Trump to leave Mar-a-Lago any minute en route to the airport in order to fly to Manhattan and turn himself in. Just little chirons that kept cutting away, and Donald Trump now uh, arriving at Trump Tower. Donald Trump now expected to leave any minute. Donald Trump now uh, en route. Donald Trump now arriving at the court. Donald Trump now under arrest. I, and I'm sure that whoever was writing the chirons for this was barely able to contain themselves because for the left, who'd been after Donald Trump in such a fashion for so long, this is literally the equivalent of their own time with Stormy Daniels, if you get what I'm saying. Anyway, on his way to the building, Trump posted on social media that the moment was surreal. I can't help but do agree. A lot of this feels very surreal. In fact, there was a certain level of disconnect uh, with all the players doing all the parts, and I couldn't quite put my finger on it, so I have to give a hat tip to Ben Shapiro, because I happened to catch part of his podcast earlier. I, I didn't get to catch all of it, but got part of it, and he was making reference to the WWE. He actually talked about KFAB, which, of course, is the storyline that the wrestlers are trying to promote. You have situations like Undertaker and Kane, uh, KFAB, they were brothers, the brothers of destruction. In real life, they're not related. You have KFAB marriages that are used to push toward, all this. So it, it just has that feel of all for show and everybody's just playing a part and you have to suspend your level of disbelief long enough to buy into the promotion. And, and that is a really good assessment. Because as soon as I heard Ben say that, I instantly thought to myself, <laughs> that's exactly this false build. I couldn't quite put my finger on what to call it. That was it. It it feels that way. It, obviously, this is not KFAB. This is real life. But there is still so much disconnect, so much political theater being thrown in with all this that it has that feel. Anyway, he said surreal. Got it. Then he posts, wow. They're going to arrest me. Can't believe this is happening in America. MAGA. Despite being under arrest, the former president is not expected to be handcuffed or to have mugshots taken. Well, he wasn't. They didn't do that. They skipped it. 
At least there was that level of respect for the office that he held, I suppose. At least that level of, I suppose, trying to take a step back from the obviousness of the political action this is. But uh, the New York Supreme Court judge, Juan uh, Mershon, I believe is the pronunciation and the last name, uh, Your Honor, I apologize if I'm butchering your name, my East Tennessee tongue being what it is. But anyway, this particular judge, who's poised to preside over the historic alleged hush money prosecution, well, Juan warned Trump, refrain from posting on social media as it could ferment civil unrest. Trump then immediately posted on True Social, quote, Alvin Bragg shut down the New York City, brought in 38,000 NYPD officers, and will spend an estimated $200 million of New York City funds for a totally legal $130,000 NDA. That's non-disclosure agreement, uh, if you're missing the acronyms. On top of that, the Ninth Circuit Court just awarded me $122,000 over the $500,000 already awarded from Stormy Horseface Daniels, the former president wrote on True Social. I, I, I'm still trying to figure out exactly why he insists on referring to Stormy Daniels as Horseface now. Uh, I, I get it. I've seen her. I don't necessarily disagree with the assessment. She does have a very long face. Uh, some people think horses are beautiful, so it's not a crack at the tip of saying she's ugly. But she does have a long face, so I can see that. But it's clearly meant to be derogatory. But this is clearly somebody he spent some time with. Even if it wasn't in the capacity that Stormy Daniels claims... And again, just the fact that he paid, and here's the tricky part, let me make this clear. He paid the nuisance money. He paid it to just get a nuisance to go away. That's not an acknowledgement of guilt. For someone as rich and as famous as Donald Trump was at that time, because this was in the height of The Apprentice. He was a reality TV star. He was showing up in movies. He was the hit of all hip-hop. God, everybody wanted to bling like Trump. He was literally a social icon. He was in the pop culture iconography. This is a guy that meant something to everyone in the country, and most people had a positive view of it. So he had people coming at him, and lots of times it was a lot easier rather than risk the accusations going public and having to fight them to just pay him off, make it go away, blah, blah, blah. So it is entirely plausible. I'm not saying it's likely, mind you, but it's entirely plausible that Trump is telling the truth when he says 
Uh, 100% innocent, never happened, didn't do it. Uh, and then uh, she violated the NDA. So, yeah, she absolutely should have to pay back every single penny she got and face legal consequences for violating the NDA because there's no vested public interest in violating that NDA. She's not serving a public good. Now, there's a lot of leftists that probably say, yes, she is. She's helping us finally get the orange man. Except you're not going to get him. You're not getting him here. You're not getting him on this. These 34 Class E felonies, and again, using novel legal theory that most experts in the field, even a good number of people that are Democrats are saying, uh, you got no case here. You got no case. <sighs> but we'll see what happens. Unfortunately, in Manhattan, it put a jury in uh, the jury box. You could probably ask them to convict Donald Trump without even doing the prosecution. You know, show up and say, here he is. We know he did it. You know what to do. Your Honor, the prosecution rests. And there's a really good chance that as long as it stays in Manhattan, he will still be found guilty. But the thing is, even state court, he will get to appeal. So even if they don't get their motion to seek a new venue, if they don't let them get in front of at least a courtroom or a judge that doesn't already hate the Trump brand and Donald Trump personally, a place where they can at least have a shot at putting a 50-50 jury together, even if they don't do that, he can still appeal, and the appeal will be heard somewhere else. And given the nature of this idea that, uh, sure, these are actually misdemeanors, but we can charge them as felonies because they were misdemeanors committed in the act of another crime, a crime that he hasn't really suggested what that is. But that's not the case he's trying to prove. I would think if this novel theory was going to work, it would be incumbent upon Mr. Braggs to be able to prove the commission of the other crime. But if he could do that, he would also be charging him with this other crime. So he clearly doesn't have the evidence, doesn't have the capability of getting a conviction there. And it really seems unlikely you're going to be able to get a conviction on felony charges for a misdemeanor crime. Again, in New York, you certainly can't count on this playing out the way that it should. But in a court of law, this is how it should play out. Anyway, it was kind of funny. Uh, an alert that came from the judge that gave the, the warning about posting on social media, uh, reported by the Associated Press, came after Trump surrendered to authorities in New York City for the arrangement. And, uh, you know, again, the arraignment over the legal proceeding for 34 felony charges on misdemeanor crimes. 34 felony, Class E felony, which is the lowest level felony, because he knows that everything falls apart and that even a judge that hates Donald Trump would probably have to throw it out immediately 
if he tried to charge him with a Class D or a Class C misdemeanor. It's like, nope, too much, too far, can't let you do that. This, maybe he gets to actually present his case. At this level, maybe the judge isn't required to immediately toss it out. And this is what they're doing. They're playing a game of, how close can we get? Well, good luck with that. After Trump surrendered, after the 38 felony charges were read out to falsifying business records, <sighs> Trump pleaded not guilty. I I can just keep going, but I got to tell you, I did like the remarks. I, like I said before, I, I came to the show a bit late, and I do call it a show because it was a bit of a show. When Sir Trump returned to Mar-a-Lago and he made his statements, they were good statements. He was, it was a campaign speech is what it was. Now, I missed the very beginning, so I didn't see uh, Donald take any cheap shots at any other Republicans. I hope that he didn't in the moments before I was able to join it, because now is not the time for that. All Republicans, all conservatives, all people that love liberty and want America to remain a free nation should be in Trump's corner in regards to this attempt of manipulating our judicial system and use it as a bludgeon against a man they simply don't agree with ideologically. Now, he did take the opportunity to do a few things that probably not the smartest thing to do when you don't know for sure if you're going to get your change of venue. He said some very strong negative things about the DA, and he's got a right to feel those things, but saying it publicly I get it. That's Trump's style. That's how he operates. Probably still not the smartest thing. But I would still be okay with that way more than him spending any time talking about the judge. Now, he's just trying to tell the truth about the judge, but he's alienating the judge even more so than what it is. And the problem with that is that even if you do get the change of venue, you've probably alienated every other New York state judge in the process. If you're going to treat any judge like they want you to respect their entire fraternity, uh, sorority, uh, however you fall into the category, they want you to treat them all with equal amounts of respect. They're the only ones allowed to crack on how bad another judge is. That's kind of their mentality. So in making the comments about the judge, while I have no doubt he's speaking 100% truth, Still probably not a very good strategy at this point in the game to say very much about it. You can insinuate that there may be grounds for you not to necessarily get the fairest of trials. But the one thing that he really did do, though, that was spot on, absolutely positive, best thing he could do, he reminded all the Trump supporters why they supported Donald Trump in the first place. He literally did point out the issues ongoing with the current presidential administration, uh, the Joe Biden, uh, the lack of parity in how they use the judicial system, pointing out once again the failings of Biden literally having 
classified documents everywhere, just scattered about everywhere from Chinatown to his secret apartments off the coast of Madagascar, where wherever he's been in the last 30 years, there seems to be classified documents. And there is clearly a double standard that's been at play. But then he also showed why New York is in this, the state that it's in and why it's the political leadership or the lack thereof that's led to that. He did a very good job of shining light on the failings of the Democratic Party and the Democratic mindset. And he once again made it clear that it is his intention to stand between us, the average, everyday American people that are trying to make a living the best we can, not looking to start nothing because we don't want there to be nothing kind of deal. And those guys, the ones that are out there trying to steal our liberties, trying to steal our freedoms, trying to steal our, our treasure. And for some of us, that's more than for others. Uh, right now, you're stealing my treasure. You're not getting a whole heck of a lot. My bank account is a little thin. But at the end of the day, Trump made it clear that his overall intention is to still not back down. He's going back into fighting mode, and he's ready to do it. And that Trump is the Trump that will win. <sighs> Watching it, though, I come away thinking that if it's up to these leftists, they would steal my lunch. They'd steal your lunch. They want to they hoard your food like China's hoarding food. I see what I did there. Yeah, see, right now experts are warning us that China is hoarding a massive amount of food. They're very soon to have literally two-thirds of the world's corn reserve, over half of the world's rice reserve, and uh, certainly more than half of the world's wheat reserve. When you ask China directly about it, they lie. Uh, it's not happening. You're full of crap, blah, blah, blah. We expect it. One of the experts that have been trying to warn us about this hoarding also said, well, of course they're lying about it. And in truth, we're relying, we're basing our estimates of how much they're going to have on what they're admitting to, meaning that they're actually going to have a lot more than what those expectations are, than what those limits are. Leads you to have to ask the question of what is it that China knows that we don't? Well, as I mentioned before, when it comes to global food shortages, China is the canary in the coal mine. See, China is already the world's number one food importer. They rely heavily on the rest of the world to keep their people fed. They can't afford to make a mistake when it comes to that, because if you have a billion hungry Chinese, that's the kind of thing that leads to civil panic leads to riots, or in some cases even worse. So the CCP isn't about to let that happen. So now we're worried about China. Tim, why are you so worried about China? Well, because you still have to ask, if China's that worried about food shortages, what does that mean for Americans like you and me? Well, again, two words, food shortages. It's already happened here to, a, to an, an extent. And we're just barely getting a taste of it. So be prepared. The fact that food shortages is not even just a likelihood, but is nearly a certainty at this point, means that it's a really smart idea to go ahead and stock up on some of the best-selling 
food survival kits on the market. Of course, I'm talking about the four Patriots survival food kits. You can create your own stockpiles of the best-selling four Patriot survival food kits that are hand-packed in the USA. These kits are compact, they stack easily, they have different delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, and they also have a rather impressive number of five-star reviews that just rave about the taste. Right now, you can get 10% off your first purchase of a four patriot survival food kit or kits or actually pretty much anything you want to get at the four patriot store get that 10 percent off the first purchase by typing in the code tap that's t-a-p-p at checkout just go to fourpatriots.com, use code tap t-a-p-p to get 10% off your first purchase of four patriot survival food that's the number four Patriots.com. Use code TAP, T-A-P-P. Yeah, see what I did there? That was a nice transition. All right, let's go ahead and take the mid-hour break a smidge early. And on the other side of the break, we will have a recent conversation that I had with author Randy Noble as we're discussing the release of his brand new book. So don't go anywhere. We will be right back after this you're listening to tap into the truth my name's joe biden all of this as more than half of americans think president biden will go down as one of the worst presidents in american history i keep forgetting i'm president Beanstalk's designed specifically for people who haven't started investing yet or don't know how to do it or haven't been trained how to do it or are worried about investing in the stock market that they've never done before. It's a robo-advisor system that really simplifies the investing process. The challenge we all have is that as you work and you grow in your career, you have to put something aside for yourself when you retire around 65 years old. And the idea of Beanstalk's is to simplify that whole process. In other words, Put aside 10% of your salary each week, maybe just $100, and let it go to work in the stock market for you. And what Beanstalk does is basically automate that process for you. Easy to set up. You can transfer directly to your bank account and puts it into exchange-traded funds, which are baskets of many stocks, which gives you diversification. That's the whole key, the idea that you can have this done for you weekly or bi-monthly. But the most important thing is to start now and make it so that you are putting something aside for your own retirement. Beanstalks just makes it really simple to do. Constitutional Grounds, the hot air roasted coffee that produces a smoother, richer, healthier, and less acetic coffee. Our unique hot air roasted coffee has a most delicious taste that everyone is raving about. Because you want the best, Constitutional Grounds is the coffee you want in your cup. Simply go to theronedwards.com and click on to the Constitutional Grounds Coffee Display to make your purchase and to be sure to use the RE20 promo code and you will receive a 20% discount. Remember, Constitutional Grounds, the coffee you want in your cup. 
Hi, this is Matt Fitzgibbons at PatriotMusic.com. If you share my passion for the simple but timeless principles that made our republic great and you like rock music, check out my five albums and videos on American history at PatriotMusic.com. You say gun control is using both hands. I've got to be free the way God made men. And I won't be ruled by the damn U.N. Hey, y'all, this is Derek Johnson. You can find me at DerekJohnsonCountry.com. And you're listening to Tim Tap and Tapping Through the Truth. She's hair pulled back in a camo cap with a catfish on the line. She's an evening gown, night on the town, candlelight and wine. She's shy, she's bold, she's like a nice cold fireball whiskey shot. She's a big high five on the 50-yard line. She's a real cool kind of hot. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for staying with me through that very brief break. And it is now time to once again welcome back to the show an author who takes a unique approach in his writing in so much as he's personally involved in the lives of a lot of the people that he deals with. And the folks that he doesn't, he still gets first-hand accounts. He hosts a podcast that's easily found on Spotify. Uh, you can find it on uh, Still on Blog Talk Radio as well, I believe. Uh, That's called The Cross in the Desert, Speaking Hope and Freedom to Iran. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the show. Once again, prolific author, Randy L. Noble. Randy, uh, first, as always, thank you so much for joining us today, and how are you doing? Well, thank you, Tim, for giving me a platform for my Iranian friends. I'm doing fine and very grateful to you to take the time to talk about this very important subject. Well, you know, we got together not too long ago when when a big part of this topic was actually being focused on by the media. But even at the time we got together, it had already started being – quieten down a bit, I guess is a good terminology. It was becoming old news for the legacy media here. Uh, Some folks were still talking about it, but not as much as you'd like. And the fact of the matter is that things are still going on in Iran right now with the protests that have escalated. It hasn't went away. Uh, There was even reports just this past weekend about the Iranian Guard, uh, at least some parts of it possibly uh, targeting the Ayatollah's home with mortars that, of course, was crushed quickly. But all of that is just the symptoms. And in truth, it's been a long time coming. Iran was a free nation before the overthrow of the Shah, and young people in Iran have been longing for that freedom to return ever since. That's something that hasn't went away. Once you have a taste of actual freedom, it's very hard to give it up. But the the spark, the, the thing that set off this particular round of protests that just won't seem to stop involved a murder. At that point, I'm going to step back, and I want to, you to have the opportunity to lay down the groundwork and tell us about what led you to writing your brand new book, Uprising, We Are the Revolution. You just basically summed it up beautifully. When you once have a taste of freedom, you, you can't give it up. 
And that is the spark that caused this revolution on September 16th of 2022. A young Kurdish girl, only 22 years old, just shy of her 23rd birthday, was beaten by security for showing a few strands of hair through her hijab. She was arrested in Tehran with her brother watching. She was pleading, ask Han, don't let them take me away. And she was carted away in a security van. And it was later on that it was discovered and the media portrayed it as some kind of heart attack that she had. They put a video, video up in Iran that she had just died when the truth is she was beaten in custody. And then they came up with an explanation of why she died. She later died three days later in a coma, comatose state in the hospital. Her name it should be so well known, Masa Amini. She is the spark that caused this latest round in re the revolution. And I dedicated my recent book to the memory and the courage of Masa Amini. My book is entitled Uprising, We Are the Revolution. And in page 10 of my book, Tim, I say, Dear Masa, you courageously defied the hijab law. Your unjust death sparked a revolution, an uprising that will never die. And the whole impetus behind this is one slogan that all of us should know by heart is called woman, life, and freedom. This is the often quoted slogan of this movement. It's a powerful, indestructible, female-led movement in Iran that is hell-bent on overthrowing a dictatorship government that has oppressed their human rights for more than 40 years. When you have a taste of freedom, you never forget it. These young people know the history of this regime in Iran, Tim, and they know that at one time under the Shah, there was freedom, as you pointed out. And now with the Ayatollahs, there is no freedom. But this movement is not just about a few strands of hair and defying the hijab law. These courageous women that I document in my latest book are fighting for freedom, justice, and democracy, and it's against a deadly gender apartheid system in Iran. Yeah. The, the overwhelming majority of people who do not understand what it means to live in a theocracy to begin with really can't even begin to assume what the dogma dictates. And sadly, there's a lot of people, particularly in Western nations, for whatever excuse they may hold, that don't bother to take the time to, to even delve into what we typically refer to as the religious dogma when it comes to Islam as a whole. And what's being practiced by the Ayatollah and the Mullahs in Iran is a very specific version of Islam where they honestly believe that it is their role to bring forth the return of the 12th Imam and that they yeah. really believe that both Israel and the United States stand in the way of making that happen. So they're a very dangerous group of people to begin with. They have no qualms about what they believe, though. They're, they are so devout that they're willing to do whatever they deem necessary to try to keep everyone in line. And in that action, they have committed terrible acts of violence on men and women alike uh, since the Shah was uh, forced out of the country. But 
you know, I, I'm always constantly amazed at the people here in this country that will talk a, a really good game about women's rights and uh, about ending slavery because slavery is not something that's entirely missing. Uh, they don't call it that, but the subservient expectations certainly reach the level of if we were living it, we would think that. But just the, the total level of second-class citizenry that all women face in this theocracy, where they basically get no say at all, it's astounding to me that we don't have more support for these folks and that there's not more of a concerted effort. But it still comes down to either A, a ignorance of the situation, or B, a lack of interest. And both of them are shameful. It is a shame when you think of female uh, feminists, you think of prominent voices here in our Western culture. Where are the voices for these women in Iran? Linda Sarsour, where are the voices for these women? Madonna, all of these feminists refuse to raise their voice. Well, I wanted to just tell you, in my book, I document why this hijab law came into being and how it caused such oppression to women. I go through the Ayatollah Khomeini instituting the hijab law in July of 1981. And if a woman is caught unveiled in public, she's lashed 74 times. But now I want you to just go forward because we need to go forward into what's happening now. The current president of Iran, who the Biden administration wants to sit down and do a nuclear deal with. President Ibrahim Risi introduced additional hijab and chastity restrictions just before Mansa Amini's death in 2022. So here's what he did. Women who violate the hijab law, don't wear the hijab correctly, they're showing hair, can now lose access to banks, public transportation, and other essential government uh, services. They have gone so far now as to use facial technology, facial recognition. This cuts down the interaction between the morality police, see, and the women. And they use digital surveillance to keep track of the veil violators. And so what happens is women start receiving text messages in their car, reminding them wear the veil or be arrested. Now, you think about what I just said to you. The Iranian government is using Chinese technology, the Tandy Company, to implement this latest way of keeping track of women. Where is the outrage, Tim? It's hard to believe that women on this side of the culture, other than the fact they don't live in Iran and they really don't empathize with them, why aren't they sounding the alarm? If our government was even in doing anything remotely close, they would be out in the streets. So it's a hard question to answer, but the feminine voices are completely silent. Yeah. And what's even more uh, important for everyone to keep in mind is that when these women get these messages, it's not a recommendation. It's not a suggestion. Oh. It is mm -hmm. a final warning. And the the women that you talk about in the book that are trying to lead this revolution, that are trying to just tear back actual freedom and bring it back to uh, the land of Iran, they're doing so under great threat. 
their lives are in danger just by virtue of having their names connected to this movement. And there is no recognition of that amongst the would-be feminist heroes. I mean, the, the more we yeah. talk about that side of it, the, the very idea of what we consider to be oppressed here, any Western country at all, it pales in comparison to what's actually happened here. Uh, tell us yeah. a little bit about some of the uh, some of the people in the book, uh, especially the ones that uh, you feel like probably are facing the greatest threat, and some of the things that they're actually having to deal with. Well, I, I dedicated this book to one of my good friends. Her name is Modis. She's an English translator online on Instagram. She teaches English to Iranians and other people. She lives in the city of Mashhad, one of the second holiest cities. One day I was working at Chick-fil-A, and I think I mentioned this to you on the last broadcast. She sent me a text on Telegram said, Randy, please be our voice. They're killing us. It was shortly after she sent me that telegram message that her brother got arrested, and then they raided her house. They confiscated her cell phone and computer. I have heard from her maybe one or two texts since then. She's so restricted and so careful because she's under surveillance. So my book is dedicated to someone I know personally that I've met, a, a beautiful Iranian lady who is uh, suffering greatly. The other people in the book – the names may not be something familiar to you, but they should be familiar to your audience. Hadis Najafi, Nika Shakarami. These are two brave Iranian young protesters who went out to fight against this government. When they heard the death of Masa Amini, for instance, Hadis Najafi was never political. She became a fierce political warrior after she heard about this Kurdish bill being killed. When she went out to protest in the city of Karaj, she was shot six times and murdered in cold blood for just protesting for freedom. Nika Shakarami, another example. She went into Tehran. She burned her headscarf publicly in a protest, and she was running from the police all night. She was finally picked up by the police. It was not until nine days later that her family even knew anything about what happened to her, and they were able to view her body. Her face had been smashed in. They tried to say, well, she, she fell off a building. They had a Another explanation, or she tried to kill herself and they tried to show her video, but her mother knew exactly what happened to her, just like the whole world. So I have these women in my book that I tell in such a way that the reader will feel like they are right there in the protest with them. And I wanted to mention someone very special in the book. She's my co-author. Her name is Heather Joy. She has a ministry to him. Just like me, the Lord put her in my life at a unique time, and she talks about how, as a rape survivor, she is able to talk to Iranian women who have been raped and minister the good news of Christ to them and pray with them and, and help and share with them what it means, because she feels the understanding about being a rape victim. She knows what they've been through. So I wanted to mention someone very special in the book before we got on any further. Uh, Heather is, is an amazing lady, um, and she is in constant contact uh, with Iranians just like me. And so she's a big part of this book. She's a co-author. 
You know, the one thing that has really stood out uh, to me uh, about what you do is you're not on the sidelines. You have developed these relationships. You're constantly reaching out to folks that aren't necessarily the easiest to stay in contact with, but you're on that front line and you are literally practicing one of the things that I try to remind my listeners all the time. When we talk about governments, when we say, oh, China this, oh, Russia that, we're not talking about the people. We're talking about the government, the leadership. So when we say in Iran, uh, I always try to be careful to specifically talk about the government and make that clear. But you're demonstrating that one thing that I always try to remind everyone, and that is when you get to know people, you realize there are a lot fewer differences than uh, that we would think, that we have so much more in common. And that's part of what makes this fight personal for everyone, or at least it should. But before uh, we go any further, I just wanted to make sure that everybody understands this is what you do. You have developed those relationships. You treat people. You're reaching out to people, and you're trying to be a voice for them. And I hope everyone will be sure to pick up a copy of Uprising, We Are the Revolution, and uh, you know, read this book and get that firsthand experience to to get a better understanding because we're talking about people that are suffering, people that just want freedom. Uh, anyway, with that being said, let me uh, slide things back over to you, Randy, and I'll let you pick up right where you were leaving off. Well, one of the uh, things that I do in the opening pages of this book is to frame it in the way that I want people to understand that this is a command for Christians. It's not an option. Proverbs 31, verses 8 through 9 says, Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Ensure justice for those being crushed. Yes, speak up for the poor and helpless and see that they get justice. That's the command of Scripture. For me as a Christian, that is my passion, to be a voice for my Iranian friends. And yes, we have a lot in common. In fact, Tim, I'm sitting here saying we have a lot in common because you know we are in a fight here in America for our freedoms. We have a government, a tyrannical kind of government, out of control to oppress our freedoms. And as I mentioned in our last broadcast, I have many Iranian-American friends that I'm in contact here that say this is the same way it was before the Shah was exiled and before the Ayatollah took control. So, yeah, we have a lot in common. And I want people to know that we need to speak up because you mentioned in the beginning how this tends to waffle in the media, how it kind of just simmers down and goes away and gets kind of quiet. Well, it was just this past February. Thank the Lord for the Grammy Awards. They recognized a man. His name is Shervin Hajipur, who wrote the anthem song for this protest. It's called Four. And it was, of course, recorded in Farsi. There's now been an English translation of it, but it's a powerful song where he puts himself in the place of his Iranian people struggling for freedom. And he was arrested. Sixty million people viewed that video of his song by Shervin Hajipur. And this past February at the Grammys, he was given in his place. Of course, he wasn't there. He's under house arrest in Iran. But an award was given to him for a song that has shook the foundations of the world 
for being one of the biggest social justice songs in our decade. And and I, I just I'm thankful that the media is recognizing the oppressed people in Iran in that way. Yeah, it's a shame though that it's such a limited thing. Uh, we we live in a time where we have some of these uh, celebrities that they do this and. Thankfully, they are helping to bring more attention to it in the process. I don't want to knock that part, but Mm -hmm. these folks are also part of the hashtag activism side, so they feel like they did a big thing by giving them an award. It's not enough Mm -hmm. to just recognize it. We do have to continue to take action. We have to put pressure on our elected officials so they'll continue to put pressure on the mullahs in Iran so that we can do what we actually can – diplomatically and to help bring about the return for freedom and to try and start making right some of the things that have been done uh, to harm these people because using the word atrocity doesn't actually feel like it covers it yeah i know what you mean in fact there has been some progress there has been some things that have done have been accomplished i should say by Iranian-American activists pressuring the U.N. and saying we need to remove Iran from the Council on Women's Rights. Can you imagine they would have such a council? Well, because of what's happening in Iran and what started in Iran this past fall, finally they were removed by the United Nations. So there is a little bit of progress, a little bit of justice, but much more needs to be done. Sanctions are helpful too, but we need to be holding this government accountable. Just recently, Tim, before this book came out, there was a chemical attack against schoolgirls in Iran. And this chemical attack has been actually going on since the beginning of the uprising, but it had not been reported on. There's been over a thousand schoolgirls that have been poisoned. Now, thankfully, most of them survived this, but their lungs have been infected. They've been sick and hospitalized. And the government even admitted that this was a deliberate attack. Why schoolgirls? Because schoolgirls are shown in the media as standing up against the government. There is a picture of the uh, of Khomeini or Khamenei there, and you see these schoolgirls standing up, taking off their hijabs and giving him the finger. So we know that the reason why there was this recent chemical attack against schoolgirls was revenge. One of the girls I wrote about in my book, Azra Panahi, she was part of a group of kids that were made to go to this presentation where they sing this anthem to the supreme leader it's a song to praise him and this was after masa amini's death and she and many of the other girls refused to sing this anthem and what happened was the principal got wind of it and called security forces to come to the school she was one of the girls beaten for not singing this this anthem to the supreme leader and she died her name is azra Pane, and i wrote about her in my book so while there has been some progress in holding iran accountable it's not enough this latest chemical attack is something that has got to be stopped it has got to be we have to hold this government very accountable for killing their own yeah. if they're willing to do that to the children of their nation they have no qualms about what they'll do to anyone else, period. Mm-hmm. They're dangerous 
regardless of any other geopolitical aspect that you want to discuss. They're just dangerous people that are dedicated to maintaining their own control. And that's just, again, there aren't enough words, and none of the words are harsh enough. Uh, you, you've been really good about sharing bits uh, from directly from the book, uh, so we're, we're trying to make sure that everybody knows the kind of things you're going to find out there. Is there any other part of the book that you really want to share uh, to try to help send that impact before we start winding down? Well, there is. Um, Heather, my co-author, um, has a real burden for one of the uh, protesters who's alive and he's being tortured in prison. He is a very well-known Iranian rap artist, and she calls him the truth teller. And he said before he was imprisoned, if you're not in the fight for freedom with us, then don't bother fighting for my release. He's in prison. He's an Iranian rapper. His body has been just racked with pain. They've poked out one of his eyes. They've broken bones in his ribs and legs. He's a young Iranian rapper. His name is Tomaj Salihi. And his story is one of the last stories in the book. We're doing everything we can to make his case well-known all over the world. He's got a big site on Instagram. But this is a young artist. This is a man that wrote songs to speak about what's happening in Iran. He has no freedom to do that, Tim. No musical artist has any freedom. You cannot dance in Iran. Women can't dance with men. Dancing is forbidden. Music is Iran. This is all Islam. This is the core of why there's no freedom. But you Yes, I wanted to bring up Tomaj Salahi. Uh, my friend Heather Joy uh, really does her best to make his name known all over the internet. And so I wanted, you know, if we're going to wrap this up, I want to end by saying we need to be the voice for this young, talented Iranian rapper who should have the freedom to sing and to protest and not be beaten into submission and not be put into prison. All right. Now, there was a little bit more to the conversation, but at that point, we're pretty much just wrapping up the conversation. And if you do want to hear the remainder, I did release this as a standalone bonus content uh, shortly after we actually had the conversation. This one's been up there for a little bit. And the idea was that this conversation was way too important not to get out there early on. Uh I don't know that there's that much that you really are going to want to dig into. Uh, this is pretty much where the majority of the important things are, other than the fact that you really need to pick up a copy of this book, Uprising, uh, We Are the Revolution. I will have a link in the show description for those of you that want to uh, pick up a copy, uh, place your orders at Amazon. And, of course, I highly recommend you go and listen to the uh, Voice in the Desert podcast. It's Randy does a phenomenal job with trying to stay on task, and he's very much focused on trying to, to help restore freedom to Iran, a, a country that before the forced departure of the Shah was very much a modern nation enjoying all of the amenities that Western nations had, 
you probably would not recognize pictures of that time frame as being even remotely related to the Iran that we see today. And it is, as I mentioned, canary and coal mines earlier, it, it is a perfect example of what we can expect if we don't defend our own freedoms. There is such a parallel here. And again, even at this point, you're not hearing the news being told. You're not hearing the stories of these brave men and women, these people who were once part of the Revolutionary Guard, uh, who have started siding with the protesters. You're not hearing those stories because uh, the legacy media has decided that they've moved on. Pish posh, such a non-story, such a ridiculous thing. Well, whatever, guys. At the end of the day, this is the single largest ongoing story for freedom and liberty that's out there. Period. End of discussion. There is no change. There is no surprise. There is nothing here that even comes close. Oh, but Jim, what about the brave Ukrainians? Well, what about them? A Russia attack? They're trying to save their country. Uh, they're getting a lot of just enough help to keep the conflict going from Western nations. Almost as if they have some vested interest in that conflict occurring and continuing. Don't know what that could possibly be. Sure, if you listen to the show on the regular, you've heard me say exactly what I think it is. But in Iran, we don't. We, we have the Obama administration desperately trying to send them money and, and help them out and all this crazy crap. I'm not a fan. At the end of the day, Iran does need to be held accountable. As long as they continue to be this theocracy, as long as they continue to be run by the mullahs and the ayatollah, they are not just a threat to their own people. They are a threat to the entire nation. And now, thanks to the complete ineptitude and, yeah, I'm going to say it, flat-out stupidity of the Biden foreign policy when it comes to Saudi Arabia, you now have Saudi Arabia siding up with Iran. These are two nations that have been at odds with one another for centuries. What did it take to bring them together? Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. What else can he possibly do? We can't say we weren't warned. Even the Democrats were warned. They were told, point blank, never underestimate Joe Biden's ability to F things up. And that's all he's done since the jump. One thing after another, insanity ensues. So very difficult. All right, let's leave that there for the first hour. Uh, don't go anywhere. Hour number two starts right after this. It's been two whole days since she's gotten a wink. She heads to a cot for an hour. A quick bite to eat and then back on her feet. 
time allows maybe a shower Child is crying, his mother is gone Nobody else hears his call She turns back to help Like an angel in white You're listening to Tap Into The Truth. Ladies and gentlemen, we are back and we are now diving headlong into hour number two of today's broadcast. Do hope you're having a fantastic day wherever you are and whatever you might be doing with all those usual caveats. It is April the 4th time of the live broadcast. So whenever you're hearing it, understand today was the left's Christmas. As so much lefty porn going on. I mean, the panic porn was a great thing, but now they all get to pretend, at least for a few minutes, that they finally got the Donald. Ooh, they finally got him. He was under arrest. He has been indicted. It is indictment day. The orange man who was bad, the kicker of puppies, the eater of babies, the climate arsonist, will finally be held accountable for all those misdemeanors that they're charging as felonies. And, you know, even though the judge in the case hates Donald Trump, and and he does, <laughs> uh, there's no question about it. It's been quite public. I'm sure. I'm, I, I'm quite certain. I, I, I don't mean to insinuate any differently. I have no doubt whatsoever that this judge, if if the Trump team doesn't get their change of venue, I'm sure he'll be completely, totally impartial. <laughs> or maybe not. Uh, let's let's have a reality check. Donald Trump is going to get a boost in his own campaign. It is probably not going to help him much with swing voters. Uh, it's definitely not going to change anything from the lefties out there who are still absolutely positively convinced that Donald John Trump is a racist, that he is a bigot. Uh, he's, by the way, really, really bad at being those things. Uh, we've talked about on a multitude of previous shows how when those accusations would be made, uh, it was very clear that from his actions in the past, uh, nobody on the left used to think that about him because there are very few people that were part of the high society of the New York area that did more to try to help minorities. I, it's just ridiculous, these accusations. that are, Well, we know he's racist because you heard how he talked about 
MS-13 gang members. That's who he was talking about when he said, These people, they're animals. They're just the worst. <laughs> he wasn't talking about normal families trying to sneak across our southern border, which they shouldn't be doing. They are still criminals if they illegally cross our border. We now have somehow managed to conflate the idea of illegally crossing our border, but then asking for asylum as somehow being legitimate asylum seekers. The left has been very successful at that. But the one thing that they're completely incapable of is understanding that the law is supposed to work both ways. I mean, it's very fortunate for them when they don't allow the law to work directed at them. What they're accusing Donald Trump of having done is no different than what Hillary Clinton done, except for maybe what Hillary did was worse. It's no different than what Bill Clinton did to try to make some of what Hillary very affectionately referred to as bimbo eruptions to try to go away. Uh, it's John Edwards did it uh, in a very clear and obvious fashion. You know, it's just... It's not supposed to work both ways. The left wants to be able to throw any one of us, if we oppose them on what they would throw J.K. Rawlings in prison right now if they could for having the nerve to say point blank, oh yeah, by the way, men are men, women are women, and you can't just change that because you say you feel that way. Yeah. And they would. And she's been on their team, remains on their team, and an overwhelming majority of the narratives. She broke with that one because she's actually a feminist. Or, you know, one of those feminazis, as the beloved late Rush Limbaugh referred to them. But, you know, I already mentioned the fact, as Donald Trump pointed out, that if the law was actually working both ways, Joe Biden would be facing legal ramifications for all the classified documents that he had no power to declassify. But, alas, there may actually be some effort at having the law hold the Biden administration accountable for one of their failings. It's a shame that it's taking a grand jury in the state of Florida, but it's a step. It's a step. Before we talk about that, though, I really need to remind you once again about that canary in the coal mine when it comes to food shortages. Yeah, that's right. We've got experts that are warning us like crazy that China right now is hoarding massive amounts of food. Massive amounts. We're talking about two-thirds of the world's corn, half, over half of the world's rice and over half of the world's wheat. They have to to have food stockpiles because they have a lot of people to feed. What is it that China knows that we don't know? That should be your first question. Now, people like me have been trying to warn you for a while. It's coming. I got the timing off a little bit, but there's no doubt it's still coming. We, Again, thankfully, America is resilient enough that we can resist longer than most people can truly anticipate. But a time is coming very quickly, and the longer Joe Biden remains installed in the White House, the more likely it is that we have to be worried about exactly what China is worried about. China is the canary in the coal mine when it comes to global food shortages. They are the number one food importer. 
period. No country even comes close to what they import. They rely on every other part of the world to keep their people fed, and they have to keep their people fed. That is the one thing that could legitimately challenge the CCP's power over the Chinese people. So they can't afford to mess up. They don't want to see riots. They can't afford civil panic. They can't afford any of that. So, Tim, again, why do you keep talking about China? Because it does mean something for Americans like you and me. And again, two words, my friend. Food shortages. That is the message you should be taking. That's what makes it a really smart idea to stock up right now on four Patriots survival food kits. Create your own stockpile at your own pace. There are multiple kits available. All of these kits are hand-packed in the USA. They're compact. They stack easily. They store easily. They're rated to last up to 25 years. They have different delicious breakfasts, lunches, dinners. And again, I keep mentioning this, not that it matters a whole lot, but if you follow this kind of thing, it might mean something to you. They have a ton of five-star reviews. People that have bought the four Patriot survival food who have partaken, who have thoroughly enjoyed it. These five-star reviews to nearly every one rave about the flavors. Right now, you can get 10% off your first purchase of four Patriot survival food by typing in the code TAP. That's T-A-P-P. Type in that code TAP at checkout. Just go to fourpatriots.com. Use code TAP, T-A-P-P, to get 10% off your first purchase of the 4Patriots Survival Food. That's the number 4Patriots.com. Use code TAP, T-A-P-P. That's all you got to do. Now, I was teasing the fact that the state of Florida is trying to actually hold the Biden administration accountable for something. There is a Florida grand jury that has now accused the Biden administration of and with good reason, I would like to interject right here. They're accusing them of facilitating the trafficking of child refugees after a five-month investigation that was conducted at the request of Governor Ron DeSantis, best governor in the country right now. And I happen to like my governor here in Tennessee. Billy, he's not as uh, well-liked by the hardcore conservatives, as one would expect for me to give a full-throated uh, uh, plus for, but I like him well enough. Uh, certainly was better than the option from the other party, if you get what I mean. But yeah, I really think that right now, Ron DeSantis is hands down the best governor in the country. Uh, it's enough to actually make me think about possibly moving to Florida, but, you know... I, Florida's just a place I need to visit. I, I really shouldn't go there. <laughs> I'm so darn, just diehard Tennessee right here. I'm sorry. I love my home state. Anyway, the panel issued a rather scathing report denouncing the Biden administration and, in particular, Homeland Security Department and Department of Health and Human Services Office of Refugee Resettlement. It disputed the ORR's claim that child refugees are being cared for and reunited with their families, a claim that I've scoffed at quite frequently here on the show. 
In fact, we were talking about this even during the time when Donald John Trump was the 45th president of the United States in office performing the duties thereof. You know, when the left was complaining and whining about the wall and the detention and, and keeping children detained as well. And a big part of that was an effort to make sure before we released these children that we knew exactly who we were turning them loose with. There was an actual effort being made by the Trump administration to make sure that the children actually matched up genetically with the people who were claiming them. An effort to stop human trafficking. That's what that was. Oh, but the left claims that compassion is when you just turn them loose and don't worry about them again. Yeah, that sounds like compassion to me. In reality, the ORR is facilitating the forced migration, sell, and abuse of foreign children. And some of our fellow Florida residents are, in some cases unwittingly, funding and incentivizing it for primary economic reasons. This is part of the report, by the way. I'm reading from the report. If any resident of Florida exposed U.S.-born children to this process, they would be justifiably arrested for child neglect or worse. Now, even though the White House policies claim to be just trying to be humane and considerate, and, you know, uh, what Mama Biden would have said is almost sinful. We're trying to avoid being almost sinful. Through the White House's policies, the two federal agencies that I've already mentioned are effectively encouraging unaccompanied children from South and Central America to make the dangerous trip to the U.S. border. Now, the grand jury found that to be the case. They agreed with exactly what I just said. They're encouraging it. Once at the border, a lot of these children are abandoned to unvetted adults. We've heard the stories now, and I'm sure most of you, if you're a regular listener here, you're listening to some other folks that have delved deeply into some of these reports, so I won't rehash them here. Uh, if you haven't heard them, uh, there's your recommended reading. Uh, part of the do your own research as you're trying to use your brain. Quoting again, uh, just from the report, this process exposes children to horrifying health conditions, consistent criminal threat, labor and sex trafficking, robbery, rape, and other experiences not done justice by mere words. Now, let me, let me reiterate that. It exposes children to health conditions that are horrifying. It exposes them to constant criminal threat, forced labor, sex trafficking, robbery, rape, and other experiences that there simply aren't words that are enough. You can't paint an accurate picture how bad this is. The grand jurors also added that they were repulsed and horrified by testimony and video documenting the treatment of foreign children. Now, it's not immediately clear what witnesses testified before the grand jury, but the report reveals that the grand jury issued subpoenas and requested 
multiple documents and other information to Florida non-governmental organizations doing business with the ORR. But they were stymied there. The Biden administration didn't want any of that information to fall in the hands of the American public, period, let alone a grand jury. They stated in the report, we received instead a response from the organizations that they would be purposely ignoring some of those requests under orders from ORR, with whom they have a contractual relationship. One NGO, a non-governmental agency, or I'm sorry, non-governmental organization, one of those NGOs officially reportedly official, reportedly, I'll get those words out in the right order eventually, uh, (laughs) one official from that non-governmental organization reportedly told the panel that their organization would rather operate an unlicensed and illegal child placement facility than risk losing ORR's funding. So the purse strings are being controlled by those people. Now the ORR actively discouraged its employees from questioning the process, even internally, even firing some, again, according to this report. One was fired for reporting, one was fired for reporting a case of suspected human trafficking. Think about that for a second. You got fired because you thought human trafficking was going on and you reported it. Human trafficking of over 100 unaccompanied minors shipped off to a single house in Texas. They reported it to a government hotline because her ORR superiors refused to investigate the matter. She was a whistleblower that was being ignored in her own department that branch of the federal government that is literally their responsibility to make sure this isn't happening. If you're not going to do your actual stated job, what can be expected? Oh, I don't know. Maybe maybe that's why you have doctors that work for the Department of Defense more worried about making sure children can have chemical castrations and surgical mutilations than, you know, actually providing medical care for active duty and uh, veterans. You know, the actual job of a doctor working for the Department of Defense. Yeah. Happened under uh, Obama, happening under Biden. It's not their actual jobs to do their jobs. It's their actual jobs to do whatever the crap the agenda is for the administration, regardless of what their stated job actually might be. The report also slammed the uh, HHS noting that at the beginning of the investigation, accusing the agency of blocking its request for routine information, uh, that HHS slow-walked productions and evidentiary, then they eventually did provide the information, but in an unusable or difficult-to-use format, causing unacceptable and obstructive delays. HHS also redacted vital tracking numbers from the hard copy documents, you know, so that the staff were unable to actually link related significant incident reports together or to link significant incident reports to any other ORR response. 
DeSantis called for the grand jury investigation amid reports that the ORR was flying and illegal immigrants detained at the border, that they were flying them into the state of Florida. The panel determined that it was occurring on a massive scale and largely in secret. They talked about how, quote, we learned that the very clandestine nature of ORR's process was what first attracted the attention of some in our state. During a six-month period in 2021, more than 70 large commercial passenger jets landed at the International Airport in Jacksonville. These flights arrived in the nighttime, often after midnight, and landed not at the passenger terminal, but instead at an out-of-the-way commercial terminal used normally for shipping freight away from police facilities and miles from the passenger terminal. Once the Sunshine State, I'm sorry, once in the Sunshine State, the passengers were whisked away on private buses to unknown destinations. If an operation were ferrying terrorists or large quantities of narcotics, this is what it would look like. We know what they're doing here. We know exactly what's going on when they step up and do this. It is damning at best. And again, we'll see how far this goes. Hopefully, something will come of it. In the meanwhile, I doubt you're going to hear about that, at least very much in the legacy media. They're going to be too busy trying to sell Trump-arrested porn to their would-be constituents. They're not going to be too worried about the fact that in the state of Florida, Ronda Sanctimonious, which the left has strangely taken to calling him now, almost as if they really do like Donald Trump, they just can't admit it. Um, they're just going to talk about what a terrible guy he is, not the fact that, I don't know, maybe he actually cares about what's happening to children, even when those children aren't actually citizens of the United States. What a novel idea. All right, let's take that mid-hour break a little early, and then I want to bring to you a unique conversation that I had because it's not all that political. With a retired Air Force colonel and former pilot for NASA, actually the first female commander of a shuttle mission, Yes, that's right. On the other side, we will be having an extended conversation. Well, you know, not that extended, but an extended conversation with Colonel Eileen Collins. So don't go anywhere. I'll be right back, and we'll have a break from the cray-cray that is politics. And if there's enough time left, I'll briefly touch on a little something else. Don't go anywhere. <laughs> Hello, America. This is Ken Crow with Conservative Daily Briefing, and you are listening to Tim Tap, Tap into the Truth. Second Skull is a protective headgear company 
with a patented line of impact-reducing products. At Second Skull, we focus on head protection as our only priority so that we can be the absolute best at it. With an estimated 2.8 million Americans sustaining a traumatic brain injury each year and a half a million children being treated in the ERH year for a head injury, there have been recent declines in athletic participation levels. We believe that concerns and fears of head injuries are factors contributing to these declines in activity levels. Second Skull has protection for every sport and for every athlete. Our product line of thin, lightweight, breathable, and practical solutions are each tested at independent and accredited laboratories. These products are patented and proven. The Old Testament prophets predicted and longed for the coming of Messiah, the one who would enter history to bring redemption and deliverance to God's chosen people. Hello, I'm Ron Edwards. On today's page from the Edwards Notebook, through a carefully selected series of Old Testament quotations, the New Testament book of Matthew documents and verifies Jesus Christ's claim to be King of the Jews. In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus' genealogy, baptism, messages, and miracles all clearly point to the same inescapable conclusion. Jesus is King, the long-awaited Messiah. President Thomas Jefferson believed that the teachings of Jesus embody the most sublime system of morals in the world. He stated, quote, We all agree in the obligation of the moral precepts of Jesus, and nowhere will they be found delivered in greater purity than in his discourses. Early in Jesus' public life, the Apostle Peter recognized who the carpenter was. In his Gospel, Matthew configured and confirmed that Jesus is the Messiah. And in his politics, Thomas Jefferson embraced Christ's teachings. Was Thomas Jefferson a flawed individual? Oh, yeah. And the last time I checked, none of us are perfect. That is why we need Jesus, which Thomas Jefferson recognized. How about you? God bless you, God bless America, and may America bless God. I'm... Hi, this is Matt Fitzgibbons at PatriotMusic.com. If you share my passion for the simple but timeless principles that made our republic great and you like rock music, check out my five albums and videos on American history at PatriotMusic.com. You say gun control is using both hands. I've got to be free the way God made Constitutional Grounds, the hot air roasted coffee that produces a smoother, richer, healthier, and less acetic coffee. Our unique hot air roasted coffee has a most delicious taste that everyone is raving about. Because you want the best, Constitutional Grounds is the coffee you want in your cup. Simply go to theronedwards.com and click on to the Constitutional Grounds coffee display to make your purchase and to be sure to use the RE20 promo code and you will receive a 20% discount. Remember, Constitutional Grounds, the coffee you want in your cup. All right, ladies and gentlemen, it is uh, my distinct honor and pleasure to take a little bit of a break from the norm. Uh, as you know, we typically are talking politics here quite a bit, and we might uh, might touch on some politics because it does have a factor when it comes to space exploration and NASA, of course. But I have the very distinct honor to bring to you a guest that, uh, well, she stands out in a lot of different ways. She was one of the first, well, actually, she was the first shuttle commander that happened to be a female. One of the first Air Force pilots to be female. But, you know, we really 
shouldn't make that distinction other than to give her her props because at the time she was doing this, straight up, flat out, doing everything the guys were doing. She trained hard, she worked hard, she earned everything she got. And uh, she's recently had the release into paperback of her memoir, Through the Glass Ceiling to the Stars. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the show, Colonel Eileen Collins. Uh, first and foremost, ma'am, thank you so much for being here. I can't tell you how excited I am to get to talk to you tonight because, as it, uh, as it turns out, there's a very select group of people that I tend to actually be somewhat jealous of. And uh, you <laughs> having gone to space, you fall into that category. Uh, how are you this evening? Oh, thanks, Tim. Uh, I'm, I'm doing great. It's uh, great to be with you and to talk about space. Yeah. Uh, you know, there is no question right now with everything going on, it is almost impossible to break through to stories involving exploration, space, NASA as a whole. Uh, a lot of stuff gets kind of pushed off to the side, but there's some really exciting news going on, and uh, we'll try to touch on some of that here. But before we do that, I do want to talk to you about the book. I mean, it's it's a great book. I had a copy of the hardback, and uh, you know, I was really excited to get a chance to look through it. But what really strikes me is the fact that the time involved between uh, you actually writing the book and getting it as opposed to when you uh, finally retired and stepped down from both your posts with the Air Force and with NASA. So before going too much into the book, uh, what was the delay? Because, I mean, you had such a great story. It seems like that would be a case where so many people would be pushing really, really hard to get you to write this a lot sooner. Well, that's right. After my my third mission, I was the first woman to command a space shuttle, so I came back from a mission, and I had emails from authors wanting to write a book. And I just thought, I'm not going to write a book. I'm going to go fly in space again. So I put myself back on the flying schedule. I wanted to go see the space station and, and be part of that uh, mission. And after I flew that, it was 2005, I came back from the flight, and I had a lot of changes in my life. My father died. Three months later, my mother died. And then my husband's company went into bankruptcy. Uh, a hurricane went through my uh, town and damaged our house. I, it was a total disaster in my life. And my kids were 5 and 10 years old. So the last thing I was going to do was write a book. So even though I had authors saying, let's write a book together, uh, your story is fresh. It, you know, it just happened. And I'm like, nope, not going to do it. So years went by, and when the pandemic hit, now I was never going to write a book, but when the pandemic hit in early 2020, all of a sudden my travel stopped, my workload went basically a cut in half, and I thought, you know, this is the time. And one author, Jonathan Ward, had been asking me to uh, join with him in writing a book, and I called him up and said, let's do it. I've got the time. And, and one other thing about, you know, I, I really am sorry I had to wait so long because there, I think that the book that I wrote is optimistic. It's I want young people to read it. I want them to hear like good stories, like things that you can do in life that are exciting, you know, whether it's joining the military or going into a STEM degree, going to work at NASA, work for the space program. There's things that kids can really, you know, shoot for, you know, shoot for the stars. You know, it's kind of what I, I named my book, To the Stars. And I hope it inspires young people and i it, it's an optimistic book 
and there's some lessons learned. You know, I talk about mistakes I made. I'm, I'm you know, some astronaut books are, you know, maybe <laughs> about how great everything is. And but I do talk about some of the struggles I've had, and I wanted uh, that to be part of the story too. That you could have, like, you know, I, w- I want to say bad things happen in your life, and you can get through them and recover and move on, you know, to something bigger and better and greater. And so, you know, I think that I finally came around to writing the book because people were asking for it. And and I had the, you know, maybe something good came out of the pandemic in my life, and that was that the book got done because otherwise I never would have written it. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, at least there's that. I mean, there have been a few good things to come out of it, and I'm going to count that as a being amongst them. I think one of the really uh, cool aspects of the story, uh, is your story in particular, is the fact that you also demonstrate that you can come from a small town and you can see a uh, something that just inspires you and you can pursue that dream. Uh, you were initially inspired to, uh, into flight from watching gliders, right? Well, that's right. I grew up in Elmira, New York, which is uh, upstate New York, kind of in the central. It, it's kind of you know farming uh, part, a lot of dairy uh, part of the state. And the National Soaring Museum is near my hometown. It's on Harris Hill near Elmira, New York. I went to a summer camp up there, and I would watch the gliders take off and land from that glider field over Shimong Valley. And I thought, you know, wonder what wonder what that looks like. And my parents had no money. They were not able to get me flying lessons, certainly not a license, certainly not even a one-time flight in a glider. They're totally out of the question. You know, we, we had been on welfare and food stamps at various points. My parents split up when I was nine years old. You know, I didn't have this ideal childhood. But I always thought, maybe I can be a pilot. And there weren't a lot of women pilots. I mean, there were some that I read about in books from World War II. They sort of became my role models. And I had that little idea in the back of my head about maybe being a pilot someday. And for any young people that are listening, the other thing that got me interested in flying was reading books. And my mom would take us to the library, and I'd read, you know, basically, you know, animals and you know, things that kids are interested in. But I found a section on airplanes, and I became very interested in how do airplanes fly, what are pilots like, you know, their stories of exploring, flying around the planet, you know, going these exotic places. And I just wanted to be one of them. And that sort of, uh, I want to say, graduated into the astronaut program because flying in space is sort of an extension of flying in the atmosphere. So for me, that kind of went together, the uh, flying airplanes and flying in space. So, you know, that that's kind of my story. That part of it is a little bit simple. And what, one more thing I should mention was it's expensive to learn how to fly. I mean, you have to rent the airplane, you have to pay for gas, you have to pay an instructor. I joined the military, and I learned how to fly in the Air Force. And I the Air Force is... Uh, really trains excellent pilots, and you learn how to handle emergencies. You learn how to have confidence in an airplane, and I think that that was, uh, I want to say, the springboard for my career is you know how much I loved being in the military and being part of that mission. Yeah, yeah, I think that also is another great demonstration about you know 
even if you do come from humble beginnings, that if you look around, there are opportunities. You can find ways to pursue your dreams, even if you think that the economics will be in the way. You can find a way, and it's just phenomenal that uh, you were able to to stay positive and to pursue your dream with a certain level of tenacity that, you know, it seems like is missing in a lot of folks these days. I, and I don't think that it is missing. I just think it hasn't been properly awoken. I think there's a, a lack of inspiration for a lot of younger people, which is, again, one of the things that I really like about your book. There's so many positive messages and a lot of great places to be uh, inspirational. Uh, one of the other things I think might have actually been a positive is you ended up having to go back and do research and uh, try to refresh yourself with a lot of the things uh, that you talk about uh, just to make sure that you were completely accurate. And uh, Did you come across anything while you are doing that that maybe you'd kind of forgotten or that maybe you didn't realize at the time was going on that uh, has entered into the public domain? Yeah, that's an interesting thing about writing the book. I didn't write it all from memory. It, I think I started by writing it from memory, but I went over. I have a little storage place where I keep all of my old flight materials. Um, I have my old checklists, my uh, space shuttle documents, uh, even, I mean, all the way down to, uh, I want to say, some of the electrical circuit diagrams. I have pretty much everything So, and I in my old logbooks, and I pulled those out to help sort of fill in the blanks. But the other thing was interviews. So between myself and my co-author, we called many people for each chapter and asked them questions. You know, we would tell, hey, this is what we're doing. Sometimes we sent them the entire chapter. And do you remember anything from this mission or this flight or this particular incident that you think uh, is interesting that we can add to the book? So we did do a lot of research. It took us about a year to write the book, and then we turn it in. Of course, the editor... Uh, tells us it's too long and we have to cut it to cut it down but I didn't want to cut out anything that was inspirational or you know something that would you know get young people to want to read the book and it, it, it's actually a pretty easy read um, I know people that have gotten through it in two days and uh, it's I want to say optimistic and you know there are things in the book on things that happened while I was on the space shuttle and the space station that were you know, borderline dangerous. I mean, we, we had a couple of incidents on my third flight. You, you know, we had an electrical short. We had a hydrogen leak. And on my second flight, we had a crack in uh, one of the front space shuttle windows. Um, you know, various things like that happened even in my flying career. I ended up in a thunderstorm one time, and another time I almost had a mid-air collision. I, I mean, there were several things that, you know, like, okay, I walked away from that alive. <laughs> Must be I'm supposed to be here for another couple of years. And and uh, it's, uh, you know, maybe not everybody wants to be a pilot or an astronaut because there's some risk taking there. And you have to be willing to take those risks and, you know, calculated risks. You know, we don't take crazy risks. Right. But I do talk a little bit about, you know, making the decision to take these particular risks and how do you know when you're, when you're ready to go. Right. Yeah, I mean, definitely being a pilot, especially uh, Air Force level or NASA level, uh, it's not for the faint of heart. Uh, not only does it take a high level of dedication to get physically capable and then acquire that confidence and uh, the skill set that's required, to, but 
it, it also requires that ability to say, okay, uh, every time I go up, I know there's a chance I might not have that landing you walk away from. Uh, the old joke being uh, any landing you walk away from is a good landing. Uh, they're, <laughs> they're not all good landings. So uh, you have to be prepared. And I think that really speaks to the level, not just of your um, your tenacity, but also that level of courage. And again, another aspect of being very inspirational. Uh, obviously, NASA is on the move. And again, a lot of folks aren't necessarily hearing this. All the media coverage and the news is... Uh, almost everywhere, but I know you mentioned off-air just before we got started, they announced the Artemis II uh, crew, uh, and there's probably a lot of folks out there that's like, well, what, what's the Artemis program? Uh, and this is a big part of our effort to get back to the moon and uh, make uh, a presence there a reality, uh, part of our stepping stone to get to Mars overall, and there's a lot of excitement within the area, but my first question to you is, how do you feel about where NASA is right now, and are we on the right track, and do we have enough support going to NASA? Yes, I am very optimistic. You know, compared to, uh, you know, the years that I spent at NASA, I think that the funding for our space program is, is better than any year that I have been there. The other thing that's happening is the uh, cooperation with commercial companies or private industry, you could say, SpaceX, Boeing, uh, Sierra Nevada, I could list several of them. You know, there's uh, Virgin Galactic, there's Blue Origin. There's... So NASA is cooperating with some of them. And instead of NASA owning and operating uh, the space shuttle like we did uh, back in the uh, 80s and 90s and early 2000s with the space shuttle, now private industry owns and operates, for example, SpaceX owns and operates the Falcon 9 and the Dragon capsule where the crew sit. And NASA pays SpaceX uh, per astronaut and per payload to get us up to the space station. Now, so that's how we're operating right now with the space station, with heavy commercial involvement. That's allowing us to go faster and cheaper, and we're going to be doing much, much more as private industry sees that they can make a profit in space. Now, you mentioned the Artemis program. Now, this is something different from space station. Artemis is the program, what NASA called the program, to go back to the moon. And this is right now a NASA program because NASA owns and operates this rocket called the Space Launch System. And just recently, the Artemis crew, four astronauts were announced, uh, that will orbit the moon. And you can look them up online to see, you know, what, what's their profile, what are they like, you know, what's their background. So this crew, in late 2024, will go in the Orion capsule on the Space Launch System, and they will orbit the moon first time since 1972 that we've had astronauts orbiting the moon. And then a year after that, we will land a crew of astronauts on the moon. And that mission is called Artemis Three. And just briefly, why we're doing that, we're going back to the moon because we're preparing for Mars. And all the equipment that we will be using someday on Mars will be tested first on the moon. You know, the moon's three days away. If, if there's an emergency, we can get our astronauts back. But Mars is six months to two years, depending on where the planets are in their orbit around the sun. Six months to two years, your equipment has to work. So it's being tested on the moon that has a similar dust environment, radiation environment. It's not exact, but it's close enough. And, and one more thing I should mention is China is planning on doing this. And we are in kind of a mini space race now with China. 
whether we like it or not, it's happening. And the China has declared that they are going to the moon, they're going to land, they're going to send their astronauts there someday. And we are not cooperating with them because our, our Congress does not allow us to operate with, uh, with China. So we're ending up in a competition with them. So we'll see where this goes. Um, I think by far the United States is ahead right now, but NASA is, I'm sorry, China is catching up quickly. Yeah, this is a point of national pride. I don't like the sound of that. <laughs> it's, uh, it, it is really exciting to me to get to, just to be able to talk about getting back into space and getting back to exploration. I don't think there's any question that that is, uh, yeah, it sounds cliche, but it's no question that that is the future of uh, humanity. There's so much science that still needs to be done, and you know, there is really a strong statement to be made about starting to spend time and colonize and eventually develop uh, other bodies out there besides just the Earth alone. And, and we've got to take those uh, stepping stones first. And I do think that with the ideas like mining and other natural resource collections, it's going to be easier and easier as we move forward to get uh, the private sector to want to help uh, uh, to be uh, more greatly involved with that exposure too. Uh, uh, one more uh, topic that I wanted to kind of touch on with you before we uh, kind of uh, said our goodbyes for this evening and that is the level of automation has changed drastically and as a pilot that was having to flip the switches and turn the dials and and uh, pull the stick, which is definitely uh, the uh, generation that you're from as far as actually piloting. Uh, do you feel like it's safer now with the higher levels of automation, or do you still kind of fall back to, you know, that's great for the new folks, but I would feel better if I've got my hand on the stick, so to speak? Yeah, so I love that question. It, it, I hate to say it, but the answer is kind of it depends. Now, if you want to talk about aircraft, like commercial uh, airliners that you, you know, fly around the country, I am still comfortable with having pilots up there. Um, I am not, we are not there yet where we can fully automate an airplane. We're not even close. And I've uh, actually watched some of this development work going on. It, you would, uh, you'd be surprised, but taxiing, taxiing the plane on the ground is one of the hardest things to automate. And uh, the takeoff is harder to automate. But you, we do have auto land and we do have autopilot, but it's good to have pilots watching that. Now, as far as space is concerned, you know, I landed the space shuttle twice. And we, land, we, you know, fly it with, you know, like a pilot would fly it with the controls. Um, I did a docking with the space station, and we, we fly that with the controls also. But nowadays, um, the dockings with the space station are fully automated. And the landings are splashdowns. We don't land on a runway anymore. But if you watch uh, the development of spacecraft, they are becoming more and more automated. And with the increase in the quantity of data and the fact that we can organize the data and do, you know, machine learning and now artificial intelligence was, was a little bit scary in itself. I'm, I'm definitely not ready to turn a spacecraft over to artificial intelligence to make decisions. I, we, we're definitely not there yet. But these are the type of this is the type of research that's taking place right now. So at some point in the future, you know, can we put the control of a spacecraft or even maybe an airplane under the control of artificial intelligence? Are, are we confident enough to do that? 
and how it, does that risk management look? So there's a lot of research going on, and in the short term, they're looking at single piloted aircraft or uh, you know, I don't know if you can really extend that to spacecraft right now because the spacecraft is pretty much fully automated and the astronauts are there to monitor and they can take over if they see something they don't like. Um, so the automation is happening uh, whether we like it or not, but we just have to make sure that we always have a human, a, a person, ready to uh, take over control if they don't like what the automation is doing. Well... Colonel, you have been very gracious with your time, and I appreciate it. Feels like there's so much more to talk about, mostly because there are a lot of other things we could talk about. So I do hope we can get together again sometime in the future, uh, hopefully not too far down the road, and uh, continue some of the discussions. Because, you know, we've got the International Space Station. That's uh, There's some discussion about uh, whether we're needing to to change things up there of course it's going to be retired at some point anyway and uh, there's discussion about that uh, there's always the ongoing talk about how dangerous it's becoming with the amount of uh, space junk that's just free floating now we've got so much stuff uh, in uh, low earth orbit that if people could put a number to it they probably would just be mind boggled and, and these are all great topics for the future but I've already taken up way too much of your time for now, so uh, real quick, it, please uh, throw out your website, uh, let folks know where they can get the book, and if you invite people to follow you on social media, feel free to throw out any handles you'd like to as well. Well, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, that's probably the biggest one. I've got a website, EileenCollins.com, <laughs> and uh the book you can order basically on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Uh, you can find it. I saw it at Target, so you can pretty much find it uh, anywhere. It was released in paperback for Women's History Month, and I want to thank everybody for their interest in the book. And you know, get it for your high school and college age kids. I think they'll really enjoy it. All right, uh, I know I have enjoyed it. It is a great book, and if you have any interest at all in space exploration. Uh, this must be part of your library. I don't care who you are. Again, uh, Colonel Collins, thank you so much. And, uh, you know, Godspeed to you, ma'am. I appreciate everything you've done. Thank you for serving the country, and thank you for being part of the uh, those steps back into space. We, we need leaders like that, and we need more of it. Thank you so much. Thank you, Godspeed. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Colonel Aline Collins. NASA's first female commander of a shuttle mission and all-around great pilot period uh, just such a if you don't have this book go get it if you can find it in the hardback I recommend it uh, the paperback is available now as well I'll put a link in the show description to the paperback to Amazon so you guys can easily find it but you want this book trust me uh, we'll be back after this brief message Okay, so no brief message at this point. We're winding down the show. But I did want to touch on one more story real quick before we ended things. Uh, initially, with all the craziness, I thought maybe we would just leave things with a non-political conversation. You know, just to clean the palate, get a deep breath. But when something big is going on in my home state of Tennessee, and some very important stuff has been happening, uh, we have to mention it. Uh, it does tend to help the listenership here in the home state. Uh, here's the deal. Right now, Tennessee Republicans have moved to expel three Democratic state representatives from uh, the House 
who joined protesters during their storming of the state capitol building last week. This, of course, they were literally leading chants with a bullhorn and disrupting the floor session. Uh, it, there seems to be a disconnect, guys. Uh, you cannot be an actual representative in the House of Representatives and be a protester on the floor. It's not allowed to be both. You have a very specific role. You're supposed to stand up and do your job. You're not allowed to do this. And it was bad enough that these protesters literally came in. If, if this was uh, going on led by conservatives uh, busting into the uh, Tennessee State House, what you would have heard from the left is cries of insurrection because it was way more like an insurrection than what happened on January 6th. But I digress. Expulsion resolutions have been filed against Representative Gloria Johnson from Knoxville, Representative Justin Jones from Nashville, and Representative Justin Pearson from Memphis. These expulsion resolutions were filed against these three over their actions last Thursday after about 400 people rushed into the Tennessee State Capitol building in Nashville. A final vote on whether to remove the Democrats will take place on Thursday, so we'll be talking about that on the Friday Live show. It will definitely be something we're following. The House Speaker, Cameron Sexton, a Republican from Crossville, if you're familiar with the state at all, kicked the three Democrats off of their committees. And in speaking to the Daily Wire in a phone interview, they said that more accountability would be coming. Here in Tennessee on Thursday, we're going to hold these three individuals accountable. Their actions deserve to be disciplined. And what they did was a breach of House rules. They need to be held accountable. What they did on the House floor I have not seen happen in Tennessee or heard of. During this rather raucous protest against gun rights on Thursday, the three Democrat lawmakers went unrecognized to the well, where lawmakers speak on the House floor, and they took out a bullhorn and started leading the protesters in the chants. Republican House Leader William Lambert from Portland, Tennessee, told the Daily Wire in speaking to them that the disruption was unprecedented, saying, quote, it never, it's never been that three state representatives attempted to incite a riot in the middle of the House floor. It's dangerous, it's inappropriate, and it silences the other 96 members. Uh, Sexton, again, said that the lawmakers wanted to be arrested that they wanted attention for themselves, adding that the disruption was planned. Now, again, in the Daily Wire's reporting on the story, they did reach out to Jones, Pearson, and Johnson for comment. Uh, as you can imagine, they didn't have a whole lot to say. The resolution against Jones, filed by Representative Andrew Farmer from Sevierville, said that he and two other Democrats knowingly and intentionally bring disorder and dishonor to the House of Representatives through their individual and collective actions. Similar resolutions were filed against Johnson and Pearson by Representative Gino Bolso of Brentwood and Representative Bud Hersey from Kingsport, respectively. Uh, 
the basis for the resolution is that they actually disrupted proceedings in the House. That seems fair enough in and of itself, but they did nearly start a full-blown riot inside of the House of Representatives. They were both inside and outside the chamber, agitating all of those who showed up. These three made a decision that they were going to go ahead and focus all of the attention on themselves. They were agitating and inciting the crowd outside the chamber. Tensions at the Capitol have been high as Tennessee, of course, reels from the murder of six people at a Christian school in Nashville last week by a woman who identified as a man. In response, Governor Bill Lee has proposed providing funding for schools in Tennessee to have armed security guards and reiterated support for a bill that would increase security measures at schools across the state. But what these three did, not only do they deserve to be removed from the House altogether, they endangered the lives of every person there, their own included, because they were so short-sighted. They decided in that moment they did not want to represent the people of their district. They wanted to be activists. They decided that they did not want to do the job for which they have taken an oath to perform. Their obligations be damned. They wanted to be seen. They wanted to be heard. They didn't care what the rules were. They didn't care what the protocols were. They have no respect for the workings of the state government. And somebody that falls into that category probably shouldn't be tolerated, even if we were talking about something mundane. But in this issue, they were literally there to attack gun ownership rights because the left wants to distract you from the fact that this woman who murdered children in cold blood did so because she had some mental disorders that led her to act out in a way that is dangerous. But we can't talk about those disorders because then it brings into question the whole idea, the whole notion of what you're really saying when you talk about transgender. It may not be fair, but it is a conversation that probably should be had. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that's going to have to be it for tonight. Thank you so very much for everything. And remember, don't take my word for it. Definitely, definitely don't take their word for it. Be prepared to put in some effort and, more importantly, use your brain if you really want to tap into the truth. In the meanwhile, one final parting message for a certain Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. This is Tim Tapp. Let's go, Brandon.
control is using both hands. Founders knew the Second Amendment was the final one to keep. To hold our other rights intact so we'd never become sheep. Is using both hands Well I prefer the 308 to the tiny 223 Gives me more than a thousand yards to protect my family using both hands evil is powerless if the good are unafraid 